unwritten purge rule, Sergeant. Don't save lives. Tonight we take lives. We make things manageable for us. Unfortunately, the citizens aren't killing enough. So we supplement it all to keep things balanced. It's important work the NFFA does, and we can't have any interference. Can't have heroes. Blessed be America, a nation reborn. Fear of God podcast, where we explore every single week that mysterious intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. We want to specifically welcome you to the next installment of that wonderful conversation about the franchise known as The Purge. If you will recall, my name is Reed Lackey, and the last time we had a conversation about The Purge, I sort of exorcised these homicidal impulses, and I got rid of my co-host, Mr. Nathan Rouse. I, I just purged him. But this time around, we were actually driving somewhere, and our car broke down because we'd been working on our whole, you know, friendship thing. And so, uh, so then, you know, we're, we're, we were stuck out in the middle of nowhere when the purge happened this time around. And so this time we're actually on the same side, which means, hi, Nathan, welcome to the show. Reed, oh my God, look out. See, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm, I'm trying to, to sort of make recompense for all of my, you know, yeah. like in the Freddy, in Freddy versus Jason, I just straight up resurrected you. And uh-huh. now, you know, like we're teammates instead of, you know, instead of, cause you know, cause I got a little heat for always killing you off every single time yeah. I introduce an episode. So, uh, so yeah. So well, I, I appreciate being remaining amongst the living. So, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, no problem. No problem. Hey buddy. Hey man. So we're in, we're, we're, <laughs> we're finishing up a three week number two, you know, can I, can I just say, what? I don't know. If, I don't know if I'm proud of us or disappointed, perhaps a mixture of both that we made it through the entirety of creep two without saying the word penultimate, even once, even once. Well, we had a lot on our mind during Creep 2. 
<laughs> a, a lot of very uh a lot of very exposed yeah. things there were yeah a lot, a lot i of, mean uh, between yeah. between towel snaps and number two references like there was a lot of we we're really just putting ourselves out there yeah yeah a lot of a <laughs> lot of personal exposure happening um oh my gosh one thing one thing i do want to mention before we get too far into the city streets um this purge night <laughs> um is if you have not before guys Please go rate us, review us, subscribe to us, lest we purge you. So <laughs> now that that is done, welcome back, Reed. Yes, to the third installment of number two. Uh, whatever we ate has really been a number on us. Um, <laughs> this is the number three of number two. So right, yeah, right, it's, right. It's, it's it's all it's all kind. Hey, of I want to make a little bit of an announcement. Can I do that? Oh, you've got you've got an announcement. All right. Yeah, go I've ahead. I've got an announcement. So Boy, I'm excited. I was trying to think of something stupid and you know. Remarkably it didn't come to me in time. Um <laughs> so, no, I know I know it's shocking. Um uh, but uh we attempted this for hereditary a few months ago. Um it sort of worked. Um I wanted to give a little more lead time on this. So um I wanted to pitch to listeners the idea of an East Coast meetup for Halloween 2018. Um, it does come out October 18th. So if you are anywhere in the Charlotte reach, we will be just anticipate that either the evening of the 18th or the evening of Saturday the 19th, there will be a meetup to watch Halloween all together in the theater Maybe we'll go grab some beverages and wings or something after it. Um, hopefully, it'll be good and worth our time, but the community and fellowship will certainly be so. So, yes, um, a Charlotte area, and that can be, you know, if you're within 90 miles, um, I would say, I'm going to look into hotels. I'm really not going to do that, but do come out for a showing of Halloween Closer to time, we'll know, you'll know exactly what kind of time frame we're looking at, but either Friday the 18th or Saturday night the 19th. So, yeah, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Reed, you're welcome to come, too. You are totally invited and welcome. Um, that would be awesome. So, I'll see. I'll know. see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. Um, I uh, on that since we're since we're just making announcements, um, I want to also say you've got one more. You've got one more week, guys, one more week to vote on hashtag I love the 80s. We've already had a number of votes come in and it's really interesting to see how all of these things are shaping up. The Survey Monkey is there and uh, basically it breaks down your nominated films from the 80s. Your favorite horror films from the 80s are broken down by year and you pick your favorites from that year. So be sure to go if you have not already cast your vote. Be sure to go and pick your favorites, your favorite films from the 80s because like we did with the 90s last year, we are going to be revealing your list. Uh, we're going to make a top 100 and probably reveal the top 50, and then we will be doing episodes on selections from the top 10. I'm so excited for hashtag I love the 80s. That, so is, that is exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, in the spirit of number two, one last bit of business um, is that if you are unaware Quarterly King 4 is right around the corner. It might even be next week, depending on how recording plays out. Um, <laughs> it might be next week. It definitely will be in the next two to three. So Quarterly King number 4 will be covering The Stand. The Stand, that massive 
piece of work from 1990, mm. somewhere in there. Um, uh, it was actually this from the 70s. Really? Why did I think it was from? Because it takes place in the 90s. So oh. the stand takes place in the 90s, but it was written in the 70s. Well, I want to say 75, 76. That's just weird. <laughs> um well you know in my defense i did read it once before i have seen the miniseries currently i'm listening to it on audio so i don't have any like oh it's so great copyright material in front of me or or that sort of thing (laughs) um regardless we are covering the stand um refresh yourself at minimum to be able to fully enjoy uh that conversation but that is not what we're talking about today reed not today. That is not, in fact, what we we're talking about today. We are finishing off our number two um, with today's Purge Anarchy. But. 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 We. <laughs> I am in, you know, while we're sitting here on our love toilet. Uh, man, the, the inside jokes are just. They're just flying. They're just flying. The, the oh fear, the gosh. fear, the fear of God jokes. Um, oh I just gotta know what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm so now- like. I think I'm so like insecure about how awesome the mix was you made for 101 that I'm like. Why are we even bothering anymore? We can't top that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just gonna replay that mix for every I love, single time. I oh love my gosh, that was so fun. On one oh one when you play the medley, how like neither of us when the other is doing it can like can like stay composed. It's really funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite one in there, still my favorite one, is the one where you're just like, What are you watching? What you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I was like, oh my gosh, this took a turn. Um, Okay, so I don't know if it will still be available by the time, because I don't know exactly what Netflix's like streaming contracts are, blah, blah, blah. But as of this recording, there is a documentary on Netflix called Haunters, subtitled uh, The Art of the Scare. And we're approaching October. We're just a couple of wait, a couple of weeks away from October, and you know, Halloween Horror Nights is coming up. I don't know if we're going to be able to make it this year or not, but um, that's around the bend. There's all the, you know, October is the time for all these sort of haunts to arise and all of that good stuff. Well, um, this documentary sort of digs deep into the psychology, the affection, the fandom for people who create home haunts. It does deal a little bit with Halloween Horror Nights, but that's really not the subject of this. The The subject of the documentary is about people who become uh, sort of rapidly obsessed with building home haunts with with these uh, places where people can come just to their home, to their backyard, or to some sort of place that they, you know, that they own and uh, and be able to go through a little haunted maze or a haunted experience. Now, given the subject matter of the film today, we might this might come back up. It is highly likely that this will come back up. There is a featured home in this documentary that is called McKamey Manor. Have you ever heard of this place called McKamey Manor? I had not before watching. Yeah, before watching this film, I had not. And this particular man, I'm not even going to call what he does 
a haunted experience. And he receives a ton of criticism from the local community where he resides. He receives a ton of criticism on the Internet. He receives a massive amount of criticism from his peers in the home haunting sort of uh, community. And basically their complaint is, dude, you are going to get us shut down. You are going to get us like regulated. Like what you are doing is going to be eventually deemed criminal and you have to stop. What he does, the best way I could describe it, is basically not necessarily like simulated scares. I'm going to go ahead and call it like simulated torture. Like, and some of it not entirely simulated. <laughs> his, his was considered on the list in the, in the film, like it was considered like the most extreme haunt in this entire sort of subset of things that they were doing. And there was a little parenthesis on the article that it showed where it said, Probably not safe. Like, like it, I, I want to be honestly like some of what I some of what I could describe for you right now might upset our listeners. So I'm actually not going to describe all of it. But what he does to these people, um, I will say the parts that might not uh, automatically upset them. Like when they show up and they sign waivers and stuff, they get smacked and beat around the face. They may get their hair. Uh, cut or shaved, uh, including beards or eyebrows. They may get their face sort of yanked on, including like if they happen to have some specific dental work that could get ripped out. Like like it is the the degree to which the people doing this sort of haunt will subject their participants to abuse deeply troubled me, <laughs> like really deeply troubled me. And the documentary sort of digs in on that a little bit of like, this is very upsetting. And the reason I'm bringing it up, it's a fascinating documentary. Everybody should watch it. I think it's anybody interested in that subject. Very well-crafted, fantastic documentary. I highly recommend the documentary. But when they're exploring this whole McKamey Manor guy, one of the things that I found fascinating is that these people go through these severely abusive experiences, severely abusive and sadistic and masochistic experiences. And when they come out of it, they almost always have one of three results. Number one, they want to sue the guy. They want to bring criminal charges against him, uh, which they can't do because they signed a 20-page waiver, and the people who tried, the police basically said, like, look, dude, you're like he covered himself. You signed away that he was able to do these things to you. Secondarily, they may want to go through it again, which I do not understand. Like, in this weird sort of, like, you know, I want to see if I can endure this more. And the third and most troubling reaction is... Several people then want to work for the haunt so that they can do this to other people. And it was it's a conversation maybe for another time or it might come up a little bit later in this conversation that we're having right now. But I was so arrested and unsettled and troubled by that notion of like, hey, this is actually not simulated jump scares, simulated fear, simulated whatever. Like it is an a playing out of a version of abuse and that one of the reactions, one of the popular reactions is, I want to now work here and do this to other people. And that whole thing was really sort of, uh, it just left an impact on me. I'm going to leave it there for so right like, now. So like, did you, did you, you know, like sign up for next summer or something or like this fall it's, for the Halloween season? It's so crazy. Like, no, there's no way in God's green earth that I will ever come remotely close to doing this thing. 
But I will say what kind of gripped and arrested me is it keeps coming up in my mind. He he videos the people that do the experience. He videos the whole thing and publishes it to YouTube. It's part of what you sign away. Like he publishes the whole experience of these people to YouTube. So so it's all there. Like you could you could look up YouTube and see these experiences that these people have gone through. And that sort of upsets me a little bit that I like keep thinking about it and like look it up a couple of times and going like, my God, I cannot believe that people ex- that people did this, that people did this willingly and that they do this willingly to other people. So much more to be said about that subject. You, now you've just created stumbling blocks for our entire listenership because they're like, I want to go look it up now. Well, th- listen, I don't blame you. And definitely, definitely seek out the documentary. Definitely seek out the documentary. But I will say this. I will almost encourage people who are curious to like maybe do a dip your toe into the exploratory thing and allow it to, here's what I would encourage. If you do that, allow it as a moment for serious reflection and reminder that there, in my opinion, that there is such a thing as, uh, I'll say too far, that there is such a thing as, even for us who watch horror films and talk about Christianity and we we would advocate for a sort of a, you know, this kind of simulation can be in proper context, can be fun and entertaining and in proper context can be to a certain degree psychologically healthy, but that there is a capacity in which it can go too far and do not for your own pleasures or for your own entertainment, push yourself too far. And if you do dive down the rabbit hole that is McCamey Manor, uh, think on those things and reflect on on how there there may be uh, there there are certain boundaries and limits to that. I think this is going to come up again, so I may say more on it when it comes up later. But that's what I watched. All right. Well, I and that's I what, just that's, yeah. I just I just took a number two. <laughs> <laughs> too far, Nathan. Too far. Oh, I'm just oh, I'm too far. <laughs> uh, yeah that does not sound pleasant on oh my gosh it was so whatsoever yes. i mean as someone who left some number two at the halloween horror nights um i don't know <laughs> what i would do if people started physically accosting me in those scenarios oh my gosh i would start it was I'm, awful and you know me i'm not i'm not I'm, I, I i'm a touchy guy when it comes to hugs uh, but you know, I want you start, you start, <laughs> you start smacking my face and shoving me around and uh, it's on. That's um, exactly what, that is exactly what they do to these people. It's so upsetting. Anyway, that's not, not cool whatsoever. Um, we need a, a hugs haunted house. Like, Oh, Hey, come get a hug. <laughs> um, <laughs> My, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a work. It's it is a, the weakest haunted house ever. It was it? It's a work. But of you progress. know what's funny about that what? is that 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 actually may be legitimately and authentically scary to people. Like, yeah, yeah I don't like. Oh yeah, yeah. Touch. Somebody, so one of our listeners so good, was like, "Oh my god, why would I ever go to where people people, want to people hug walking me? out with arms outstretched to hug you?" Yes, exactly. Hug me. Come get a hug. <laughs> um. So one thing I watched recently, Riri, is unfriended dark web. Oh, you saw th- I, I still haven't seen it. How was it? Um, I liked it. Um, it okay. I think it got slightly overhyped for me. Um, I was listening to oh, okay. a, a podcast that mentioned it in review fashion that was very praising. And I I, un- I don't even disagree necessarily with the praises that were foisted upon it. I just was expecting something a little scarier than maybe what I got. Um, it doesn't 
it it is definitely different in narrative than the first one, which is good. You know, like you got to do something a little different. But I think the I, it will surprise me if there's a third one because I think the formula, the the artifice, kind of starts to wear thin after a while. You're like, oh yeah, okay, I got it. Right, right. But I think it was decent um, and and would be potentially interesting fodder for uh, a subsequent conversation of us. But yeah, that's okay. That's yeah. what I got, Riri. It's no McKamey Matter, right. but it is the dark web. It, that's a dark, <laughs> dark place, too, that I don't want to go. That's true. There's yeah, a, there's a, there's a theme web. to this, what you're watching, is I don't want to go yeah, to these places. Yeah, no, that, that, that seems to be. It seems to be. Well, uh, I guess that, that wraps up yet another edition of... <clears throat> What? What are you watching? <laughs> what? What are you reading? What are you listening to? <laughs> wow. I, I give I give up. <laughs> <laughs> Listener, listeners don't know this but we're on episode three in a row in one night and we are worn out <laughs> the the pretty good i give it five pumpkins um <clears throat> oh my god so here we are at the end of the number two um we are discussing the purge anarchy number today two. um I had never seen this. Had you only seen it the one time previous to this? I had only seen it once. So this was my second viewing of it. Yeah. How do, how do you feel about the purge anarchy? Have you seen all of so, them at this point? I've seen all of them. Uh, well, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I have not seen the most recent one. The, the first, first purge, purge right. thing that kept the, yeah, that was just out in theaters. Not that long ago. I have not seen that yet. Um, I will say that I think my initial excitement was rooted in sort of expectations, and I'll go ahead and say like uh, my my low feelings about the initial entry, because this time around, so like if we're imagining that I'm going into this second film uh, or coming out of it from a first viewing, being like, man, Purge Anarchy is like four star film, I love that. I think this viewing probably felt a little bit more like three and a half. So like dinged down a little bit, not quite, didn't quite push the buttons that I had remembered it pushing. I still enjoy it more than the first one, and I still think that there's some there's different enough things for us to develop a substantive conversation out of it. At least I hope so. But uh, but yeah, I w- I was like when I went into it, I was like, oh. I think I expected to to sort of uh, enjoy this a little bit more. So this was one of those rare moments where a revisitation kind of uh, kind of dinged now, it down. Now, have a you bit have me. you seen that? I think very soon there's going to be a TV series. Yes. Now I'm very curious about this. It's happening in the fall. It's like a ten episode limited series that I believe either A and E or something somebody one of the more cable networks are doing. Yes, I'm very curious about that. Do very you know? Is do. it meant to be like is one season one purge night? That's a great question. I don't know. Yeah. I would imagine it'd have to be unless every unless there are going to be episodes that take place years apart, which is entirely possible. Um, but You know, it's funny. I the- did. I, I, after watching this one, I did go do a little reading and, you know, some interviews and whatnot. I do think the TV series is intended to jump back and forth some chronologically, but I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get a handle on exactly what the overarching 
delivery of a, a season will be you know is it one purge night with flashbacks for these characters kind of sure, thing or not right. i will say this i mean like i think creep two is creep two blumhouse blumhouse certainly yeah, yeah creep yeah, yeah. one is yeah these are um, these are both yeah these are both blumhouse i mean i will so so what might be heard in my voice is i actually like you on the first viewing for me thought purge anarchy was okay um i did not kind of really dig on it as much as I was kind of hoping I would. But, right. um, but I will say this, like Blumhouse is more than probably we even kind of realize is, is really blowing it up. I mean, they are, they, they have, they have expanded beyond that niche little horror house that's making movies. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. They're standard setters now. Now it's a, now it's because I don't know if you know this, but they produced sharp objects, which is getting a lot of buzz on HBO. The Amy Adams series. I did not know that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then the purge, the purge TV series. Actually, it's funny. I think it may have been in relation to dark web. It was so, which was also Blumhouse, um, the same podcast, or maybe it was the same podcast series, just different episode. Um, they interviewed the, the makers of unfriended dark web and they were talking and it was actually really cool to hear the conversation. They were talking about how freeing working at Blumhouse is compared to a traditional kind of Hollywood setting that because mm. they, for their traditional features now, who knows if they're morphing the business model a little bit, I don't know, but for their traditional features, they kind of intentionally impose certain creative limitations and not right. just budgetary. And and they were just talking about how like when you um I would not be able to just pull out of the air what it costs to make a movie these days, but let's say a mm-hmm. Black Panther it costs three hundred million to make. I, I don't know. I think it's probably somewhere in that ballpark, you know, two hundred, something like that. Let's just say for yeah. sake of argument, if if Black Panther costs two hundred million to make and, and I don't have 200 million. Definitely not. An unfriended dark web costs intentionally from the outset 200,000 or let's say 2 million. That's probably right, more realistic, right, right, right. more realistic number. $2 million. They were just saying how like the $200 million enterprise, there's so much writing on it that it can mitigate the amount of just general fun. Uh, inherent to the creative process. And they were just really kind of speaking well of the Blumhouse experience that it is just fun making movies there because one, when you impose certain limitations, like in the case of unfriended, the limitation creatively is the only things you see on on screen is what's conveyed on a a, a computer camera. You know, it's like, okay, well, now you have some parameters to work with and it kind of forces you into a certain level of creativity that you might not otherwise have if you can just do anything. Um, So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think, though my energy towards anarchy is a little medium, uh, it it does just reinforce how impressed I am with what they are doing overall. And and that's what's so great about that studio is just the the idea that yeah, I mean the micro budget model is really where things are going right now because yes, you spend 2 million dollars to make the film, you maybe spend another million on marketing, you're 3 million dollars invested, right? And then maybe there's some 
additional costs to actually print the film and distribute it to to theaters and stuff like that, you're still at most maybe five million in. If domestically it makes twenty million, that, well, that's four times your profit, right? Right there, right, Bam. right, right. Take 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 five of that and go do the same exact thing, and it gives you the freedom to take chances. It gives you the freedom to fail. It gives, right. you know, because yes. like Truth or yes. Dare was not very well received, but they can afford to take that because it's like, well, yeah, sure, we have our Truth or Dares, but then we also have our Get Outs. We've also got our Happy Death right. Days. We've also got our Sharp Objects. It's funny you, you know? say that so, because I think in that conversation, they actually say it encourages us to embrace failure, like as opposed to seeing yeah. it as, yeah. uh, you know, production house breaking. Uh, right. They, they're able yes. to see it as kind of formative. You know, what can we learn from this experience as opposed to, oh, now we have to shut shut the doors. And I think what's great about what Jason Blum seems to have done is what he seems to have done is the 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 impulse would be, okay, great. You made a movie for two million dollars. We're going to make the next movie for twenty million dollars. It's going to be even better, which is actually what they tend to do with like franchises right, and sequels. Right. They they expand the budget to be like, oh, well, now the the next one's going to be made for twenty million dollars, and it'll be that much better and everything. But what he seems to have done is seems to have said, oh, great, that movie made fifty million dollars. We turned a, a a forty million dollar profit off that thing. That is eight more movies we get to make. Sure. You know, and sure. so and and that seems to be how he has sort of turned the game onto its head is to be like, yeah, we can maybe afford to give the two million dollar movie a five million dollar budget, but it's still the micro budget analogy. Right. It's still right, like right. We're, we're you know, we're not gonna creep up into the, you know, twenty million dollars. And the kinds of stories that they're telling don't really warrant that much. You know, it's like they don't need that much money. Purge Anarchy had a much bigger budget than the purge did, but it's still relatively small on the scale. And that was just so that they could do some things inside the city, you know? And so uh, it, it's still this micro budget model that I think is super smart. And I think it, it's, it's bolstering and encouraging to hear that Jason Blum has managed inside the quote unquote Hollywood system to foster this creative outlet for people to take chances, to take risks, some of which pay off in Oscar wins, some of which everybody's just going to look back and go like, yeah, that wasn't that great, but that's okay. Sure. You know, sure. like, you know, it's, it, it's okay because like you said, they can embrace the failure instead of going, dear Lord, what are we going to do now? Everybody's out of a job and we put all of our money into this and now we don't know what to do. Like that won't happen. As long as he continues this same model, they, they are here for the long haul. Like that's, that's what they'll do now. And it's great. It's fantastic. Yes. Bye, um, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's let's jump into the movie itself. Um, you know, we we patted Jason on the back a good bit here. Let's jump into the movie itself. So we did a conversation on the purge, not but three four months ago, um, if that. Um, really great conversation just about that particular film. This one, whereas that film is more bird's eye view, home invasion story in this new world, uh, where the United States permits one night a year, one 12 hour block a year, any crime is legal, uh, namely marijuana. Um, that's the most, that's a big yeah, one. That's a big one. That's a big one. Um, the purge 420. This one <laughs> coming to theaters. Your new year. Jason Blum. Have I got an idea for you to the typewriter? We could, we could sell that <laughs> to Mr. Blum. Um, and well, this one is a much more, I think you use this phrase in the first purge conversation, escape from New York idea. Like it is ah, on, on yeah. the street out in a purge night. Um, and kind of the, the, 
pitfalls and dangers and that come from that experience for these characters. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll start my likes dislikes with basically like, this is a great cast. Um, oh, it really is. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, uh, Michael K. Williams, who I just wrote Omar coming. That's a wire reference, uh, shows <laughs> up. He's the, the dissident voice. I can't remember the character's name. Um, so yeah, Michael yeah. K. Williams, you got Frank Grillo, you got Matt Saracen, you got Nikki from Lost. <laughs> Lost reference. Bingo. Um, <laughs> I thought like there was one. Oh, Lakeith Stanfield, which yeah, I, I had a- no idea. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's yeah, cool. Basically basically a glorified cameo. I mean, he's, he's in it a lot more, but masked. So you don't realize it's him. Until right, right, right. In the, in the truck. So it is pretty cool. And I, you know what? I don't know what year this came out. Was it like 16, 15? Uh, no, it was 2014. Okay. Only about four years ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so still pretty blue cast, green cast, green cast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> still pretty green cast. You're thinking there. of the Smurfs. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm not doing much thinking at all right now. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, really great cast. Um, I like, I, I haven't seen him in much. And I made a joke during Purge One conversation about him or about Crossbones. I like Frank Grillo. I think. Oh, very much. He's, yes. he, he, like even watching this, you're like, cause you and I, during one of our watch a watch one of our rather extended ones, uh, went on and on about Shane Bernthal and Marvel's the Punisher. I mean, he very right. much is cut from that same cloth, you know, just really has mm, this, yeah. in this kind of intensity yet vulnerability. Um, I think he really serves this material. Well, Absolutely. My first exposure to him was in a very short-lived TV show called The Gates that was meant to be like a, a macabre sort of, hey, this is a neighborhood wherein there are vampires and werewolves and witches and all these different things live. And he was the sheriff, uh, the completely human and normal sheriff of this town. And uh, and I that was the first thing that I remember seeing him in. And then, of course, after that, shows up in this, shows up in the Marvel films. And, and so, yeah, I think he's very impressive. And I think he's really good in this. He delivers, like you said, he's got that sort of ability to to brood. He carries a weariness to him, but at the same time, you're kind of rooting for him. He's that chiseled, like, yeah, this guy's going to do the right thing. I mean, obviously not as crossbones, but, uh, you know, in a film like this, you, you kind of pull for him. You can tell that he's, he's wearing his grief and his pain on his sleeve, but, um, but you still know that he's, he's ultimately going to, or hopefully do the right thing. Um, yeah, he's, he's great. Well, one of my favorite scenes is when he's on the elevator and cap is like, are we going to do this or what? You know, I know. I was really surprised was that the that the purge did this because I was like, "Wow, man!" Like, I know the cap, the cap is out. You know, like he's he's uh, you know Captain America is just like that. Hey, really, is, new, that really new... is a great scene. <laughs> that is a great moment. Uh, you know, Cap, but Captain America is all like, you know, new founding fathers. Like, y'all, you ain't seen. Yeah, he's, he it's was Hydra, like, "Hey, it's Hydra Cap." Captain America actually went out and and kind of pulled a Jack Nicholson and he's like, oh yeah, new founding fathers. Where do you get a load of me? You know, like wow, there are so many streams being crossed right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the purge anarchy. We are getting somewhere here. I will say this. So like, um, despite my my relative fuzzy headedness, like um, I th- I thought that generally speaking, it's pretty inventive. Um, yeah, s- sort of. It's a little generic. 
Um, and I think that's sort of what I felt after watching it was like, well, if you categorize Purge 1 as home invasion story, while I won't disagree with the criticisms you brought up to Purge 1, I think Ethan Hawke's performance and the concept bring it up a notch on the whole. Um, yeah, I don't disagree. Whereas with this one, we already know the score going in in terms of the concept. So all we're left with is street narrative. And I just, I think it was the, the narrative left me a little cold but that said sure. there's like i said there's some pretty inventive visuals uh, there's one moment i loved uh where it's once the sun has fully set and i feel like the image is grillo's character is in the foreground and just back behind him down effectively an alley you see this burned out flaming truck just roll by that's killer yes it's it's completely just part of the atmosphere but that's yeah. killer yes this huge truck it's I, I i couldn't tell in the moment in this viewing if it was a bus or if it was an 18 wheeler um but th- yeah it just yeah i think it's a semi but, I, but I okay yeah fully ablaze um just crossing the intersection and it's yeah that's that's really fantastic and i will say so like i have a lot of likes on this film but one thing that I that, that I that I dislike, and it's no small thing, is I remember being very excited about the fact that it's like, oh, we're going to get, I forgot, yeah, that we're juggling like three plot lines. We're juggling Frank, Gil- Frank Grillo's character, we're, judging, we're juggling the two um, people who have just lost their dad, and it's like all of those things are, are coming down, and then we have the married couple who whose car got broken down and and so they're struggling and all of these three disparate plot lines and that at first excited me then the plot lines converged and from that moment on it's a pretty major dislike for me that um Keely Sanchez and um Zach Guilford they really do almost nothing with their characters other than a few momentary blips on the narrative yeah, yeah. there's not much to speak of about them thematically or narratively they are struggling like they're having some troubles as a couple in the first time we see them and by the end of it they have sort of resolved well, and that, especially but because they are a bit more anchor in that first 20 minutes yeah I mean, yeah you're, you're, you're very yeah. much kind of in there with them um and i mean you know i kept waiting for grandma saracen to show up and just give a hug you know to somebody say say you i adore, I adore. oh <laughs> so yeah yeah i mean that that's one major sort of dislike that i have is i feel like they kind of waste that those characters particularly because the only one of our protagonists if you will that that doesn't make it to the end of the film is zach guilford um i forget his character's name off the top of my head but um yes matt saracen he's the only one that uh you know doesn't survive the night as it were so it's even more a shame that they don't do more with them narratively and thematically well and especially to your point like i was a little turned off by where they leave her character like, oh just there there's yes. there's well, well it's not no it's not that she just gets left there it's that for what seems to be a movie about the moralistic nature of to purge or not to purge and what that does to us when we do that Remember, she gets left and she's like, I want to purge. Right? Oh, that's right. That's right. She wants to help. Because she gets, because yes. yes. Saracen gets taken out and Landry's very upset. Um, and she, 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 
<laughs> Listeners can't see me shaking my head at I know, you. I know, I know, I know. I mean, there's just so many convergences on this movie. It's like The Wire, Friday Night Lights, Lost. Um, if you, you know, haven't, if you Atlanta, haven't, Atlanta, Atlanta. What? Yeah. Br- brief pause. If you have not seen uh, Game Night, Landry's in it, and he's amazing. You need to see it. It's great. Who knew from Friday Night Lights? Landry Clark was going to become the standout. Oh yeah, yeah. Star. Yeah, I know. I know. He has he's done great. so much. Yeah, he's and, like and a he's like a pudgy he's work. like a pudgy Matt Damon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, he's getting lots of great work and in a variety of different types. Breaking of Bad, really Fargo. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Game Night. Those those are great. <laughs> <laughs> I love how like after that, there's just the crickets. Like, what did he do after that? I don't know. There's, there's, I don't know. Yes. Quick, um, look him up. So, <laughs> so yes. Um, oh, anyway, the point I was making is just like a, a little. You were commenting on the where it feels like the movie just kind of drops the ball with Nikki and Saracen, and mm-hmm. where Saracen gets killed by the end of it, and she's like, "No, I want to purge because listeners I think that's where she's so confused huh? if they don't know. Listeners are gonna be so confused if they don't know who you're referring to. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. I love what? it. What? No. Listeners are just going to be so confused because her name's not Nikki in this film. We were referring oh, to her as no, Nikki. No, no. And, and her lost uh, and character. Matt. Right, right. Anyway, go ahead. No, Keely Sanchez. Go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yeah, it isn't just that she gets left and wants to help them, right? She says, I want to purge. Like, And anyway, yes. the point I'm just yeah, saying yeah, yeah. is like, it does feel the narrative feels a little confused about what to do with the two of them. Um, but I do think, I do, th- and this will come up in themes, I think that directly creates a contrast between her character and frank grillo's character and we'll we'll get we'll get there i think when we talk about themes but i can see that yeah i can see that um actually okay here's a beat i did love and i would categorize it as a love i think it was just deft storytelling and scripting and could have easily been missed if you weren't paying attention i love that when crossbones is considering helping the two of them the first you know the first the the yes i can't think of their characters but um when he's pondering helping them or not you already know he's got some misgivings or a backstory about having lost a child Mm -hmm. and 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 as a result his marriage and when she yells mom that's mm-hmm. his decision point. I, I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome. It was just a really great yeah. beat. And you know what's really funny is that, like, and I feel like a somewhat similar thing happened when we talked about the first one. It's like I uh, I watched the first Purge, and or not the first Purge, but the right, original right. <laughs> entry in the franchise. <laughs> I watched all these, all these meta names. I know, um, I know. <clears throat> but I watched the Purge, didn't like it very much. We're talking about it, and I'm like, you know what? I'm too hard on this movie. There's some good things about it. And like right now in this conversation, because I didn't want, you know, like I watched Anarchy for the second time. I was like, oh yeah, that let me down a little bit from what I thought it was. And now we're sitting here talking about it. It's like, oh no, that was that was pretty good. Yeah, I liked that. Oh, you know what? Maybe that was better than I thought it was. So I think we're just gonna wind up talking myself into feeling better about this film than I expected to, because I do like. Like, I really do love that moment and something that I enjoyed the first time around and that I like a lot right now is I do genuinely like Grillo's character and his character's journey. That really, I think, is the is the heart and soul of this entry in the franchise is what his character is going through, why he's purging, 
what he's up against and his ultimate decision by the end of the night. I think that's I think that's really what this film is trying to say and why I responded to it initially and even still respond to it more strongly than I did the the original entry in the franchise. Oh, yeah, totally. His his journey. And I, I don't know. I just remember thinking when she yells mom and clearly that being the decisive moment for him was really yeah, strong. So great. Um what could be a bridge to scares unless you, well no i've got one more item on here too but i loved the booby trap cable in the street oh my gosh yes when it drags him down the, yeah here's, but here's what i remember writing down when he's sitting there he's like shoot the cable shoot the cable i'm like dude i could put the gun right up to the cable i'm probably gonna miss this cable i know i, I know like, yeah there's I no way i could shoot that cable oh my god unrealistic yes because, I mean, Matty was just a QB. He's not a marksman, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Everybody go watch Friday Night Lights. You'll love it. It's oh, great. please do. I will say this. I did not. I think, I think part of my ambivalence about the movie is it's far more vignette-oriented and, and ultimately because of that a little disjointed than I liked Mm. uh most explicitly illustrated by the game room conceit yes Mm um which i think is a good concept for maybe another purge movie (laughs) Mm. Um, i I just i just think it kind of got a little overstuffed by the end yeah you know again i like the idea i think it's a great concept i just think the execution of it i really was like eh, i don't know Sure. No, I I understand what you're saying. And and again, what I like about what I respond to the most strongly about anarchy is how it builds upon the themes of the first film, how it finally takes those themes into these extended places. To that end, I do think that they maybe tried to to address too many of those ideas in the same film. Yes. And and maybe that ultimately sort of hinders any of them from having the impact that they would as a singular idea. Um, so yeah, I definitely could could see that, but I still admire and appreciate that it went that it went beyond just you know the singular home invasion sort of entry. Just that because one you've got a bunch of different entry points for the purge concept in this one movie you've got oh yeah the the dad martyring himself and what the nature of this martyrdom concept is in the world of the purge and like that's could be its own sort of you know film if we're building a franchise here you've got the game room concept of rich people basically collecting stragglers and submitting them to these terrible you know kind of murder games like that's a whole kind of a, a film unto itself. You've got the weirdo guy who shows up multiple times in the back of the semi truck. Like there's just a lot. Big yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot going on. Sure. That, that I, I want to give some credit to, I mean, on the one hand for a movie that's just meant to be traipsing from point A to point B, you've got to have some, you've got to mix it up some to keep it interesting. Uh, I think ultimately it just kind of starts to struggle a little bit under its own weight. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, and of those plot lines, the one that stands out the strongest to me, as I mentioned before, is Frank Grillo's, um the the whole struggle of forgiveness. You've been dealt a a severely traumatic blow to your life and health and well being and your family, and now 
there well this is probably pivoting us towards themes so i'll just i'll just hit this and then we can go into scares if we want. hit it but, and forget it i will hit it forget it but yeah that that concept of <laughs> wow that was we're tired y'all so um <laughs> so but um bingo but that, that, that idea of you've been wronged and here's legalized revenge legalized authenticated authorized revenge and what do you do with that because like you said in our first conversation about this that the film brings up the conversation about what is legal versus what is right um and now that was referring to the first film but here you go one step further you know into these these ethics that it's like yeah it's one thing if you need to cleanse your soul air quotes uh, accompany that if you need to purge these impulses it's another thing if somebody's like dude this guy robbed you of one of the human beings that means the most to you in this world and in a senseless and horrendous way that person deserves to pay so how do you how do you deal with that that not only would somebody emotionally resonate with that, but now the government has legally sanctioned your ability to go and take care of the problem. And yeah, so we'll get, I'm sure we'll get back into that in themes. <laughs> You're there. Um, I'm already there. Any any scares you want to talk about, Reed? You know, it, it's funny because not a lot stood out to me in terms of like sort of nerve wracking things. But there was that one moment inside, like when they when they arrive at the friend's house. And they're there. And to be honest with you, I don't quite know how I feel about it because on one level, I'm like, oh, wasn't expecting that. That's pretty great. On another level, I'm like, man, that's like the cheapest, easiest little you so-and-so's having an affair with the sister. So sister going to go crazy and, and shoot everybody up like, OK, all right. That's it just felt a little pedestrian in terms of a plot wrinkle. But at the same time, it comes at a point in the narrative where that was the last thing I was expecting to happen. So that's startling and, and sort of unnerving, as it were. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's honestly not. I don't think any of the films are really the kind of thing that are what I would consider to be scary. There's, a, you know, disturbing and upsetting concepts in it, but not a ton of what I would consider to be actually scary or unsettling so no i don't have much on my list um i did think um lakeith stanfield before you know it's him bowing up on matt saracen at the car made me jump um, oh yeah 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 and i i, I think you know you used a, a word a minute ago you either said unnerving or unsettling but both apply here the character diego in the apartment um when he says you oh pass gosh, me by yes. every day like that sense of kind of entitlement personality kind of on on full display there yes was, was pretty yes. was pretty unsettling it's funny you were talking about the the affair family vignette and talking about the purge tv show the the almost black comedy version of it is all these little mini moments in a given purge night and just one character who happens to keep wandering in each of the each of these scenarios <laughs> like, oh my gosh i can't escape yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just trying like to survive that. the night i need new friends <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean overall I, i'm kind of with you scares wise i i've been trying to process this of of why i think i feel more emotionally strong about the first film than I did the second one. I think part of it might be 
one, just the first film is your introduction to this world, but also in many ways, the Ethan Hawke family of one and, you know, uh, let's give credit here. The Ethan Hawke, Lena Hetty family of one, ah, yes. as well as their neighbors who show up like it's clearly people who are on the top side of this culture's experience society's experience and so it sort of it sort of beggars a lot more of that like what do we do when you're on the top of a a culture and and you have this sanctioned violence whereas this this one is kind of within is 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 almost bottom side you know Mm. of of it and so it, it the the feelings attached to watching it were were pretty different um sure I think all I'm trying to say is the purge one invites a stronger conversation about the concept. Uh, whereas cause it's an introduction. Sure. Yeah. Whereas the second one kind of, you alluded to that and we can pivot to themes if you want to. Um, sure. Sure. What I wrote down, the phrase I wrote down is humanizing vengeance. Mm. And I will say this, that this movie gets right, dude. I hate and get so tired of movies and, and you might say just stories in general, but mostly where I see it is, is film that glorify vengeance. I'm thinking specifically of this recent Bruce Willis death wish garbage. Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and that's rather dismissive way to put it, but I remember watching that trailer thinking that looks terrible and and i've always wrestled and even though i love this movie movies like a man on fire right you know Mm, this this notion of the main narrative is about meeting out vengeance and quote unquote unquote, justice to those who we might say deserve that um sure one thing i think this movie gets really right is especially by the end of it helping you really feel the weight of this character's choices Mm, um, mm -hmm. in a way that maybe only this kind of concept can create. Like I, I I feel like specifically, and maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like there's a scene in the car before he goes in. Yeah. There is one. Yeah. Yeah. That, that he's, I don't know. I just have this image of him with his head kind of on a headrest, leaned back with his eyes closed real tight. And just, you can just see the weight of what Mm -hmm. of the choice he's about to make. Um, Right. And, you know, I wrote that word down again, this holiness idea, like when given the opportunity to permissibly meet out what can be construed as justifiable revenge, what do we do? You know? Right. Right. And I think, I think the first movie just basically says, when you can do anything on a given night, what do you do with that? This one sort of says when you can do back to someone what they, you might say, deserve and get away with it, do you do it? And that's a, right, right. That's a hell of a question. Well, and, and and it's a distinct contrast from the first one, wherein you could dig into the first in the first film, and I think we did dig in quite a bit in the in the first conversation about how. The, peop- the people who are victims of this don't deserve it. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, unable to defend themselves, not financially capable of, of arming themselves or something, but they don't really deserve this. And this 
directly says like, what if they did? What if there was what if there was an individual who actively perpetrated a devastation to the life of someone and somebody else has the ability to, you know, like basically you've got an avenue through which, yeah, you can you can meet out this degree of vengeance. You can meet out this version of vengeance. And how that strikes me is we can frequently, even in our own compassion, we can frequently say, hey, those people don't deserve that. Stop doing that. But then we may not find it so easy to revoke and reject vengeance when it's somebody who kind of deserves it. And when I, I don't even say kind of deserves it, when it's somebody who has done something that is recognizably heinous or despicable. And there are people in the world who have done those things and who have, you know, I'm thinking it's so funny. It must be on my mind more than I'm. Uh, more than I'm ready to let on. But like last week, I talked about the James Guns, the Roseannes, the the Donald Trumps. Um, I'm thinking in this conversation of like the Harvey Weinsteins, where it's like the, where there is a degree, you look at it and you'd be like, hmm, yeah, they, they deserve consequ- consequential action. Now, obviously, something like the purge is dealing in extremes. So it's dealing in like, yeah, this guy lost his, his child to a drunk driver, a careless drunk driver. And now he has been given a legal abiding right to go and claim that drunk driver's life to take him out in cold blood. And what must that cost a person? What must that, uh, what must that do? It's very, very easy for us, for you, Nathan, and for me to sit here and to advocate for people whose faces we've never seen, uh, names we don't know, the the proverbial masses of uh, marginalized and oppressed people. That is very easy for us to advocate for them. It's very easy for us to lift them up. It is much more difficult to sit and advocate for the person or persons who perpetrated something devastating or heinous in our own lives and to examine of ourselves whether or not we we would if given the opportunity uh purge them or yeah. purge them in which is well and i'm gonna uh, this conversation just popped into my head um someone close to me i was having a conversation with recently and i'm trying to even contextualize this in the moment but they the person the person i was in conversation with is a person in ministry, a person I respect in ministry who we were having just some hard conversation, uh, not hard for us, each other to talk about, but just like wrestling with big issues. And, and his comment was basically like, well, you know, Oh, I think it would may have even been around kind of death penalty type stuff, big stuff and Mm -hmm. wrestling through like, well, it's easy to to be against something like the death penalty in the theoretical, but what about when some of this stuff hits you personally and directly? And right, and and I'm not going to put words in this person's mouth and suggest like, oh, what they were saying is, oh, it's okay to be to have the death penalty because sometimes you do need it. That's I don't know that that's exactly what this person was saying, but it did speak to me of like, I mean, any of us can. When I, when I ask the question, who has wronged you in your past, mm. all of us are going to have someone that's going to pop into our heads. Um, and I'm sorry, Reed, just get over it. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, broadcast therapy. Right, right, right. Um, you know, all of us are going to have someone in our head, and and the notion of having to forgive that person is so weighty and fraught for us as individuals. And yet, I do think that's exactly where Christ calls us to do our deepest work. And I will yeah. say too yeah. that I think the part of the good news to me of the gospel is I have help to do that work. I don't have to yeah. Yeah. manufacture that on my own. I don't even have to complete the task on my own. You know what I mean? Right. I have right. to at least be able to recognize that that task ought to be completed because the grace extended by Jesus covers every individual on the planet and in the cosmos. And thus, who am I to deprive that grace? Um, and that's really all of a sudden I just got really yeah, that's big fine. there. Have it. Yeah, um, have it. Something else this kind of speaks to, to me talking about going from the minute to the monumental here. And, and this does kind of scratch at some of the stuff we brought up in purge one, but I think there's such, we should all be extremely dubious of religious nationalism. And what mm. I sort of mean by that in this moment, as it relates to this movie is somehow construing the law of the land, the law of a land as to the letter, the law to be abided for us as faithful followers of Jesus. Right. And this movie couldn't speak about this more like this person by rights, she and uh, I wrote this down, and it's just now coming to me. Lorraine, in the in the affair story, while prepping to kill her sister, mm. says, mm -hmm. "This is my right granted to me by my government." Yeah, yeah. And you know, we could say, "Well, this is an extreme story," and you know, but there's there are people right now in the real world who would abide that the government currently operates in such a way that is right and good. And there are people right. currently in the world who would suggest that the government is not abiding by guidelines that are right and good. So whether you're talking about extremes in the purge or whether you're talking about more realistic scenarios in the world we live in, there's still going to be variance in, in, you know, sort of thought process and, and belief about how the government should or shouldn't operate. My point simply is that we as believers, we as followers of Jesus, if we're wanting to be practitioners of faithful living, the government is not our source for that experience. Right. Right. And which, is, which isn't me proposing as the film title suggests an anarchic sort of point of view at all. It's simply saying, right. well, your government grants you permission to do certain things, but that doesn't mean that you are inherently it's, it is meant from a faith perspective that you are permissive of doing those things or, right. or the other way around, you know, what your right. government imposes legally on those who may not deserve it doesn't mean by any stretch that you as a faithful follower of Jesus ought to abide, uh, especially philosophically and perhaps uh, tactically and practically those things. Mm -hmm. 
Does that make any right. sense whatsoever? Oh, no, it, it absolutely doesn't. I keep thinking of the scripture, though. I don't have it pulled up in front of me where Paul talked That's about. That's all right. Like, Apparently, I paraphrase and you get it right. I'm just kidding. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> bingo. <laughs> don't don't passive aggressively beat up <laughs> our know, bingo I'm listeners. Kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I actually but, loved it. I was a little uh, freaked out, but I loved it. Oh, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, the uh, But no, I'm thinking of the the passage that Paul wrote where he said, yeah, all, I mean, all things are are permissible to me, but not all things are good for me. You know, like all things I'm, I'm basically, I'm allowed to do anything, but I won't let myself be ruled by anything. I won't let myself become a slave to these impulses, to these other things. And I think that that's, that's part of what comes to my mind when we think about like this version of what is my right versus what is right. So that's the difference. This, what is my right versus what is right. And too many of us can easily become concerned with the my right question versus the what is right. What is right and good to do? And what are we doing to enact and exert that thing? It, there was a line that Big Daddy said to him when he gets him cornered, you know, like uh, Frank Grillo's character goes, confronts the man that killed his child, and then the the moment cuts away like the movie like cuts away and you're left for a moment with your presumptions maybe he you know presumably killed him but we don't know for certain and he's out there on this lawn and when he's out there suddenly that big daddy guy like shoots him and wanders over to him and says and uh, i wrote this line down so i made sure that i could uh, i could say it properly it says there's an unwritten purge rule you can't save anyone and I thought this is this was interesting to me. It's not just about that you can choose to participate in this or not. In this film, it's also about like you you cannot foster goodness. Like you can't under undermine right, right. the the purpose of this. And even more so, he admits like. Hey, yeah, it wasn't working because not enough people were doing it. So we have to go out and that's why we kidnap people. And that's why the wealthy get to have their little murder games and all of these other sorts of stuff. It's like we have to put together basically a task force to go and round up people and and set the booby traps and everything like that because not enough people were being killed, Um, which, of course, solidified the speculations from the first film that this was all just a government ploy to sort of rid itself of the poor and the weak. But it was interesting that he's telling this man Here's what's fascinating about it. Big Daddy is telling Frank Grillo's character, you can't save anyone. Now, he's referring to the the two women that he saved in the sort of, uh, mm. you know, end of the first act of the film. He's referring to that. What he does not know at that point and does not know fatally for him is that Frank Grillo has also spared the life of the man that took his child and that he's also saved him from himself. Sure. He say he saved them. He saved the two women from the predatorial sort of task team that was after them, and he saved the the man who was responsible for the greatest tragedy in his life, saved him from himself. You said something earlier, and I forget precisely how you phrased it, but I can remember I had this thought where you said like uh, it was something to the degree that, you know, our mercy is is limited and our capacity for forgiveness is is like limited so we have to lean on something beyond ourselves i forget exactly how you how you phrase that or how you articulated it but here's what it made me think there are certain uh, just 
to be candid about it, there are certain things that once I strike upon an idea in my spiritual life and well-being, once I strike upon a phrase or a statement or a, a, a an idea that is ministerial to me, then I will simply adopt it and it becomes almost like a ritual to me. And one of my personalized rituals that I've had is if I get into a situation where somebody at work, somebody in my family, some uh, a dear friend, uh, somebody that it is important that I maintain a relationship with, something happens and they wound or offend me to a degree that is really extreme, I will pray a some version of, Lord, I don't have enough mercy and grace in my heart to forgive them and to move past this. So I need you to grant me some of yours which operates on this fundamental belief that the Lord's mercy and forgiveness is limitless. Sure. And that there is no end uh, to the capacity he has to grant us that should we ask for it. And I think our problem is um, we just don't ever reach out to the Lord for the things that are automatically beyond us. We will re- we will reach out for like certain outcomes. I think we have a tendency to we'll have a tendency to say like, you know, Lord help me to get through this hard trial or get through this this circumstance, get through this uh, dilemma, let things go well at work, let things go well in my finances. We'll have a tendency to reach out to him for that. We more rarely reach out to him for like, Lord, I am struggling with forgiveness in my heart for this person or Lord, I am struggling with affection or doing the right thing by this person or in this situation. And I need, in other words, we don't, we don't often ask for wisdom. We don't often ask for mercy towards other people. We may ask for it frequently for ourselves, but we don't often ask like, hey, I need a capacity to forgive this person. Can you grant me that? Maybe if there was some tremendous trauma, we would do that, but not for the little things, not for the guy that cuts us off in traffic, not for the careless friend who is just unmindful with their words and hurt our feelings. We, you know, we don't often ask for those small little things. And I think the fundamental concept of the purge is the best way to psychological health and the best way to national health is to embrace the violence and exact the violence and, and enact it. And what I do love, genuinely love about this film is that it introduces like, no, actually there is a better way. And that is that you save people, you help people right. in the midst of all, right. in the midst of all of this that's going on that the government has allowed and granted in the midst of all of that, you still march to this steady drum that says, like, nope, this is not who I am. This is not what I do. The government can sanction whatever it wants, but I will not shift when they say this is the new good, right, and healthy thing. I know it's not. I'm not going to participate in that. And I just love that Frank Grillo is, like, genuinely struggling with that. I kept wondering why I was forgetting his name and I looked up his name on IMDb and he's just credited as Sergeant. Uh, <laughs> so he's not he, wow. he's not actually given he, he's not actually given uh, a, a name. Um but I did have a, a a passage of scripture and then if you want we can talk about this a little bit more or we can we can wind this down. I have just two more passing thoughts but a passage of scripture that I thought of was Psalm 72. I'm going to start at verse 12 of this. It's referring to Solomon, the king, but I loved this language. It says, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. 
He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. And the language that stood out to me was from verse 14 there. Precious is their blood in his sight. And I thought about that. I was like, wow, we would probably consider our own lives and our own blood to be precious. But how frequently have we looked at the huddled masses, the starving masses, um, the wealthy masses, the whoever else, whatever station or subset of life that they're in. How frequently have we looked at, at that group and said, precious is their blood in the sight of the Lord. Precious should be their blood in our sight. Precious should be, should be their well-being, their life, their their personhood. It should be precious to us, for we believe that it's precious to the Lord. Going back to that McCamey Manor thing, it struck me as so upsetting and disturbing that one of the common reactions to people who endure it is, now I want to do this to somebody yes. else. Yep. Now I want to pass this along. Because I feel like we have a fundamental schism where we do not necessarily naturally view the lives and the blood and the circumstances of other people as precious. That's why I loved that that language of, of the Psalms. We don't view them as precious, and because we don't view them as, as valuable or precious, we view them as expendable and disposable and as outlets or avenues for our ire, our frustration, for our vengeance. We view, we view those people as somehow disqualified from the mercy, grace, well-being, and wholeness that the Lord has offered to us, and because we view them as less than that, and because we view them, and and sometimes we, as uh, Sergeant easily could have for the person who claimed the life of his son, we can say like, well, they brought that on themselves. Right. They did that right, themselves. Right. And as we've as we've identified before, I don't think that that's the posture Christ wants us to adopt. I think Christ wants us to adopt a posture of like, hey, they are precious to me. Their well-being is precious to me. And even the depths and the atrocities and the heinousness of their sin does not eradicate their preciousness in the sight of the Lord. And that is something that I think we would do very well to be mindful of when, you know, in the film, it's talking about the government sanctions it. But it doesn't matter who sanctions it. It doesn't matter whether your parents did or whether your friends and peers do or whether your community does or whether, you know, some organization to which you belong, it doesn't matter whether the church sanctions it. Like if, if, if something is, I'm thinking of like these whole subgroups of like neo-Nazis and uh, the, you know, entire groups of people that will adopt certain ideologies and personas. And I'm thinking of, you know, the Catholic church that has, condoned and covered up all of these tragic abuses and everything it does not matter who sanctions it it doesn't matter if the government covers it up it doesn't matter if the church covers it up it doesn't matter if your peers have covered it up we have a we have a need and a responsibility to view the lives of those we would otherwise hate as precious because the lord views them as precious does that does that make sense do you understand what i'm saying yeah. Yeah. Uh, two final thoughts of my own. Like one thing I wrote, it's, uh, I appreciate your contextualizing the end again for me. Cause I'd forgotten why this phrase matters is when big daddy says what he does. And then who is Grillo's 
child's killer inadvertent or otherwise oh comes out into the light of the morning and you as the viewer like oh wow that's because i i didn't know where the story would end like i right right, of course i was kind of ready for him to have done the deed and just because you know when he when it looks like he's gonna get killed by big daddy it's like well yep kind of the moralistic Mm mm-hmm balance scale balancing that seems to be right if he did kill sure, this other guy. Right. but what i wrote down is that we only ever win by saving each other mm. and i yeah. think that to your point and w- what you were kind of articulating that i'd said so i was in this conversation with this person and uh, whether it was a death penalty or something like it and the notion of when someone else uniquely or someone else corporately has inflicted pain and damage to us that's that that's where the rubber meets the road right that's where oh well it's all you know people people who would contend for like say the death penalty oh well they did this thing like okay yeah i mean naturally that's what is supposed to now happen you know Mm. and and i just think there's a reason the concept of mercy would fall for me in the column of a supernatural virtue it is not Mm. And we have the capacity to show mercy. There are limits to that capacity insofar as Grillo's character, for example. I don't think this is a praying man, but in his own strength, he didn't quite have enough in him to extend full mercy to this person. Right. You know? Yes. And it required us buying into the story and him giving himself over to the availability of mercy to perhaps himself, but definitely to this other person that would per- right, permit right. him. We're talking about permission, permissiveness that would permit him to say, no, I, this is right, not a thing right. I need to do. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think ultimately that it, this movie had as profound an effect in its, kind of philosophy or philosophizing as the first one did. Um, right, but I do think right. there was a lot of strength to it. Some of the minutia starts to bog it down a little bit for me though. Yeah, I can understand and I can, I can sit with that as well, but I do think that, yeah, it's as a, as a final button, we'll bring in David as pumpkins and then we'll, we will wind it down. I do think that uh, this is going to sound super cheesy, but, I, but I mean, Oh, God. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Prepare to roll your eyes, listeners and co-host. This is the thing that keeps, I keep, we're talking about this idea of forgiveness and we're talking about the, you know, I'm that, that scripture verse is rattling around in my head, you know, their blood is precious in his sight. And here's the statement that keeps coming to me. And it's cheesy and silly because of the cross and because of what we know of the cross. But this is what I was going to say. Forgiveness has blood on its hands but not of the people that are forgiven. It has its own. Sure. That forgiveness has its own blood on its hands. And what that speaks to me, I know that it's some, something of a clunky or, or, or cheesy idea, but what that speaks to me is forgiveness hurts. It hurts. It hurts almost as much as it heals and it costs almost as much as it gives back. But it is, it is the proven path to wholeness and, and well-being. And we do ourselves a grave disservice to pretend that it is easy 
or to pretend that it doesn't cost everything. A film like The Purge Anarchy, uh, it, it does, it just illuminates for me that, yeah, there, there is a tremendous self-cost to making the active choice to forgive another human being of an atrocity, uh, great or small. And we should keep in mind that that yes, there will be there will be scar tissue, there will be pain, but if we bear if we're willing to bear that cost itself, then yes, we may walk away with the scars, but we'll walk away with the with the freedom as well, and with the the lighter burden that has been granted and gifted to us, and and uh, yeah, and and I love that this film ends with the dawning of the new day, yeah. and and where is it? We'll we'll end on this button. Where is he going? He's being taken into a place where they will tend his wounds and they will, you know, that like he is going, he is about to literally go through recovery and who drove him there? You know, it's sure, the, it's the sure. man that he set out at the dawn of the night to, to eradicate him. And that man, that man drove him there. And yeah, it's a simple little thing. I mean, it's a simple little narrative nugget, but it's significant in this, in to me, in this idea and understanding of forgiveness and, and how, how we work it out and what it costs us um, to get there. So. Amen. Amen, brother. (laughs) Um, So why don't we go ahead and bring in old David as pumpkins. Um, So as we do every episode, we're going to measure this on style scares and substance. Mr. Nathan Rouse, what do you give to the purge anarchy in the measurement of style? I actually stylistically like a lot about it. Um, I'm going to give it a three and a half. All right. Um, I actually am going to sit right there with you with a three and a half. Uh, I can't remember what I gave the first film. I'm really hoping that I gave this film higher than the first one because I do think I like it a little bit more. But yeah, three and a half is kind of kind of feels right for for style, as it were. Um, for scares, I mean, this one's even sort of, like you said, digging into the premise, this one's even sort of less so an, an upsetting or unsettling than the first film was. Um, and even though there's some tension, it's not a terribly scary film. So uh, I'm going to land on like a two and a half for scares. Well, you know what? You sat with me at three and a half. I'm going to sit. Aww. I'm going to sit with you at two and a half. Um, now uh, for me personally for substance I think what is nice about the purge and presumably entries beyond the second one kind of keep up here like it it is ripe with you know sort of substantive potential I mean I think that's sure sure what people respond to and why it's become a hit franchise for one but um, so this one's narrative is a bit more straightforward, but I think the journey of Grillo's character is where the heartbeat of the film is. And so from that standpoint, I think substance wise, I'm going to land at a three and a half. All right. Um, I- I'm going to just give it a slight nudge up and I'm going to land at a four for substance. I think the film's, grasp is a bit uh beyond its reach uh or reach exceeds its graps i forget exactly how to do that <laughs> you know what i'm trying to say <laughs> um i think that the film aims for more than it can actually grab yes. onto yeah and uh and so for that reason i'm i'm gonna land at a four 
Um, but it, uh, but I uh, also like the reason it's as high as a four is because I do think it's genuinely and intentionally aiming for some interesting things. And I, I have come to appreciate how the purge as a franchise seems to be wrestling with this moral center. Yeah. I have come to really appreciate that, uh, more so in these two conversations that we've had on our, on the show, uh, than I did in just viewing the franchise in a bubble. Um, I think it, it does. Do you like engage with? I do. I, I. It's funny because I initially liked election year slightly more than the first one, but not as much as anarchy. But the experience of rewatching anarchy has made me go like, well, how would I feel about election there right, right now? Right. But I did, but I do enjoy it. Uh, I can tell you Sergeant is in it. Uh, oh, really? Frank, Giller, Frank, yeah, cool. Frank Grillo's character is, and he's once again a main character as opposed oh. to just a like a cameo. Like he is, he is a a primary character in that story. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, again, if you've enjoyed, I would say this to listeners, and I would say this to you, Nathan, if you have enjoyed these films to the degree that you're like, hey, I like them, they've given me some stuff to think about. I, I think Election Year has, it, like, it's worth your time, and. Uh, the, I, I like where election year lands. I'll just say that I like where election election year lands. But uh, yeah, so that that not only puts a wrap on the our conversation about purge anarchy, but I think it is wipes away the series too, doesn't it? It wipes away the series. <laughs> I'm not no comment, no comment. It is time to pull the lever. It is time. It is time Get to wash our hands. Wash our hands of these of these of these episodes. And, wow! And and move on from hashtag oh. number two. So, uh, oh, you know what? I cannot believe this. I didn't even say, but we gave the Purge Anarchy six point five out of ten. David oh. S. Pumpkins. We gave it all our measurements, and then we didn't even like. Yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Six, six and a half out of well, ten. Well, our, David our S. legs were falling asleep, so you know they, we had to get up. <laughs> I do hate that moment where you're like, oh, God. <laughs> I love you just made it real. Like, no, no, really, that sucks. Where it's just like, oh man, I made a grave miscalculation. So anyway, I <laughs> <laughs> waited like a minute too long. Oh my god! Um, all right, so ladies and gentlemen, um, please go if you have not already. Vote on hashtag I love the 80s. October's series absolutely depends on your participation. So go vote on hashtag I love the 80s. Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, for staying up so late, and for, uh, yeah, for enduring the purge anarchy and this series. This, yeah, hey, it was this, uh, num- number two. It's all right. I can, I can live with it. <laughs> we, should, we should go for another one. Okay, so, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Listeners, thank you so much as always for make it a reg- Make it a regular thing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a wrap, folks. <laughs> Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes, or to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.